This morning we're starting a new series in this, on this issue of up, in, and out. And I'm going to explain to you what this means uh, in a minute, but uh, I had the incredible opportunity this, op- this, uh, this weekend to spend uh, about 36 hours with my bride as we celebrated 14 years of marriage. Uh, we spent uh, 36 hours away from the kids in peace and quiet, and it was amazing. Uh, we were like, we need another week or two of this. Um, and uh, it was really hard to pull ourselves away and come back. In fact, the last thing we did uh, is we took a nap. It was the most amazing nap I've had in a long time. We just laid down and just went to sleep. But we're really boring these days because when we just get together, we just want to like just sit and just eat and sleep. And it's amazing. But uh, all that said, um, we got, got away. And you know what I've noticed? Is every time we get away, uh, we try to get away a couple times a year um, just from the noise, just from the chaos. Um, because our house is very noisy and, and it's full of life, and I'm going to miss it one day, but today I need some time away, um, is we re- we're reminded that, that life in general, it just always moves towards chaos. It just kind of moves towards noise, and it moves towards, um, towards complication. Uh, you maybe have heard this as a leader. If, you're, if, you, if any of you are in leadership, that organizations naturally, they drift towards complexity. Uh, the longer a leader, an organization is in, is in uh, place or it's established, uh, then the nature of the beast is that you just keep adding things on top of things, on top of things, on top of things, until you get this really complex organization. And what started out with a really clear, compelling, simple vision, all of a sudden it's got all these things attached to it, and it makes it really hard. To, what are we even doing these things for? Why are, we, why are we doing this or why are we doing that? And try to come back to what are we rooted in? What's, what's really driving this? What's the foundation? What's the purpose? What's the point? And so... Our lives can be that way over and over again because the truth of the matter is, and this is the first blank in your, your, your follow-along guide there, but if left alone, our, not, our lives will naturally drift towards self and away from God. Um, the, 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 notice, the way that I see this out, um, just even practically, uh, you know, not just even about self, but you know, if, if, we, uh, if we just kind of take our time and our money, um, our relationships, and we just kind of let them be, and we don't really think about and work on them, what you, you start to notice is that things don't go well. Um, you know, you start to get out of, out of control with your money and your spending. You start to get out of control with your time. Uh, pretty soon, like, your, your schedule's running you instead of you running your schedule. And we like to use the term, we, we're just living reactively. You ever been there? You just feel like you're living reactively. You're reacting to the things that are going on rather than, than directing and giving it instruction. I mean, there's a guy that teaches on money. His name's Dave Ramsey. Um, some of you probably have heard of him. Maybe you've heard his radio show, or maybe you've even seen him on Fox on television. He talks about money all the time. Uh, he's got some really, really helpful teachings. But one of the things that Dave says is that if you don't, if you don't uh, take care of your money, if you don't mind your money, uh, you, you will actually be controlled by it, right? And so you've got to make your money do what you want it to do, because if not... What will happen is all of a sudden you're like, you're enslaved to your money, which is actually a proverb where it says that the, the borrower is slave to the lender and the idea that even money can really control our life if you don't get a handle on it, right? But it's in all areas of our lives that if we don't get a plan, if we don't make a, a, uh, an assertive effort to, to give direction to our lives, we will, we will drift towards chaos. And that's because, again, at the very root of who we are, we will drift towards self. And what do I mean by self? I mean towards self-centeredness, towards self-reliance, towards, towards self-satisfaction, and ultimately, 
maybe we're all offended by this, but it's the truth, ultimately towards self-worship. We all will tend to put ourselves at the center of life rather than the God who made us. See, life doesn't work when we're at the center because that's not how it's made to work. The way that life was made to work is to have God at the center. And when God is at the center of life, if he is the hub, if you will, and the spokes of parenting and marriage and job, they come out of that hub, life begins to, to come together. But when we put ourselves at the center, what we find is that there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of concern that arises. So how do we correct this? Well, that's why we believe that the Bible is so important. It's not the only reason that the Bible is important, but the Bible actually helps us recenter ourselves on the truth of how we were made and how life works. Like, I don't know if you understand this, but God is wise. He is, he is incredibly, incredibly smart. He doesn't need us to tell him that, but if you read this, it is amazing. It's incredible to look at the truths that are here and how they actually work in everyday life. I know some people will say the Bible's archaic. I know they will say that, you know, well, that was a book that was written 2,000 years ago, and so it doesn't really have any applications for me today. And when people say that, it's like, have you actually read it? I mean, you should read the truths that are here. You should, you should understand and, and, and see what is here because God is saying to us, here's how life works. Here's, here's how things are designed, function, so that we can succeed in life. But we know that the Scripture will really help us recenter our lives on what we were made for because the one who wrote this book is not just the author of the Bible who inspired men to write it. He is the author of life. He put these human bodies together. He understands the complexities of who we are, the difficulties and the ups and downs, the challenges of our emotional life and our spiritual life and our physical life. He understands all that, and he sees all that. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He sees it all. He knows it all, right? And so we even know that in in Scripture, again, I don't know how familiar every one of you are, but, I mean, the Bible teaches us that Jesus put on this flesh. He's walked in our shoes, if you will. He understands the ups and downs and the dangers that we face as humankind, the temptations that come. But I want us to look at a passage of Scripture. We could go to hundreds of passages this morning, but I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that's going to set the tone for the next few weeks, and it's going to help us kind of recenter our lives on the things that we were made for. If you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 22. I'll have it on the screen, but there's some Bibles that are scattered around on the floor. If you don't own a Bible, take that as a gift from us to you. If you just need one this morning to use, they're there for your using. And uh, in my Bible, if you're using, I'm actually using the same Bibles as the ones on the floor. It's page 641, if that helps you get there faster. So, Matthew chapter 22. Um, let me give you a little bit of context in that uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, because this is one of the Gospels, Matthew's one of the writers of the first, he's the writer of the first Gospel, and uh, in, at this point in the ministry, uh, the, the intensity through which Jesus' opposition is increasing. I mean, they are getting very frustrated with Jesus. They want to kill him. They're trying to find a way to trap him so that he will say something that they can say, yes, we can pin him on that, and that will, that will basically eliminate him 
from uh, the conversation, from the planet, so that we can just get him out of, the, out of the way and get back to doing life the way that we were doing it before he showed up on the scene and disrupted everything, okay? And so the Sadducees, uh, this group of, of religious leaders we talked about during our Big Picture series, uh, they come to him and they try to trap him by asking a question about, okay, you know, are we, who's going to be married to who when you get to heaven? What's funny about that is that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. So they're, t- they're asking a question about heaven and eternal life, but they didn't even believe in it. So Jesus is not a fool, and he, asks, he basically replies to them a very, very wise and astute answer, and they're just silent. They don't even know what to say. They're just dumbfounded. Man, he's amazing. He's a, I, I wish that I had that same capacity, right? So many times I wish I just had that answer. Just right there, and, and we read these passages, and we forget just how, um, how well Jesus handled opposition, how he was able to silence it so easily because he was so wise, so in tune with the Father, he knew exactly what to say. But then this group of Pharisees, and you pick up with me in the text, verse 34, where it says this, Then the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees over this issue that we just talked about, and they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, notice straight up, here's the Pharisees. They're trying to test and trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something. He's not supposed to say, but once again, he gives this amazing answer. Uh, He gets right to the heart of the issue, and he gives them this command that is really not a command, at least in the sense that this was not listed in the Ten Commandments. This wasn't listed in the law that they had followed. This is actually, um, this is really the overarching principle, the overarching idea behind all of the law. And he says, love God and love people. So there's a vertical what Jesus is saying, and there's a horizontal piece to what he's saying. Let me explain. First, he's saying, love God. So there's a vertical. We look up to our Heavenly Father, and we love Him, respond to Him, have a relationship with Him, and then love people. So there's a horizontal component that we love those around us, people, other human, human beings on the earth, on this planet with us, okay? So that command with the vertical and horizontal reality will actually drive us the next couple of weeks as we think about up, in, and out. So up is where we want to handle this morning, talking about our love for God. And then in and out, we'll actually talk about the, the love that we have for each other within the community of faith, those who believe in Jesus. And then out, those who don't believe in Jesus, that God wants to bring into the community of faith, okay? And here's the thing. We, we want to be a church, and I'll, and I'll land this, on this this morning when we, when we wrap up, but we want to be a church that calls people to a personal relationship with God, and we want to be a church that also helps us have quality, strong, developing relationships with each other and also relationships with people that are outside of the community of faith as we look around and we see those who are far from God and we love them, serve them, and present the gospel, the good news message of Jesus to them, okay? That's our hope. That's our desire. And so as a church, when we look at how are we doing, how would we evaluate, uh, are we doing what God has called us to, we believe that this is a great grid to ask. The question of, okay, are we helping people connect with God? 
Are we helping people connect in community with each other? And now are we helping each other uh, grow in our love for those who are outside the church and sharing the good news, the message of Christ? Because that's what he's called us to do, is to be disciple makers. To go make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? I think many churches do really good at one or two of these, but we can struggle with all three of them. Now, what I don't want you to, under, what I don't want you to think is that when we say up and in and out, and I want to overanalyze this, but what we don't mean is that we should just live in complete balance in our lives. Uh, and what I mean by that is that while we want to do all these well, this first component is by far the most important component. Uh, because the reality is, is that I hope that every single one of our lives are skewed towards the kingdom of God. That we are all skewed, and, and, and in essence, we are all committed wholeheartedly to the person and work of Jesus. Because it's only out of that that we will begin to do the other two things. It's only out of being able to really connect with God that we will have anything to give to anyone else, right? And we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks. In fact, I'm excited to tell you that next week, Josue, who's the pastor of LifePoint, he's going to come over here and teach on the out piece. So you are going to get out of order from that. I'm going to go to LifePoint next Sunday and teach on the end piece. And then we're going to flip and we'll end our last week. I'll teach on the end here and he'll teach on the out at LifePoint. And so we were going to talk about what that looks like practically. But let's talk again about the up component this morning. Thinking about loving God. Notice that in the passage he says, again, what command in the law is the greatest? Now he's talking to the Pharisees. And this is an expert of the law. Okay? And he asks, you know, here's the thing about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were amazing at following the law. So much so that if you're reading through the Gospels with us right now, and we're, we're saturating ourselves in the Gospels 30 days through the New Testament, um, you may have noticed this, that the Pharisees, there's a story where Jesus goes over to a, uh, a Pharisee's home. And as he's sitting there in their home, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have the guts to do this, but he just calls them out straight up. And one of the things he says is, he says to the Pharisees, these law keepers, he says, you tithe your spices. You tithe from your spice rack. Anybody in here tithe from your spice rack? Like, go on, okay, let's have a little thyme. Let's take that to Jesus and some oregano. You know, like, anybody else tithe from your spice rack? These guys literally were so committed to the law and so committed to tithing and to, to you know, have this, again, this external appearance of godliness that they would tithe from their spice rack. He says, but all the while, your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are far from me. You're tithing, even from your spices, but yet your heart is not committed to, to me. You don't love me. You love yourself. You're committed to, to your appearance. You're committed to the law and those external things. And he says this straight up while they're there in his home. So we see that there's, a, there's this deeper issue that Jesus is going after. It's not just about following the law, but it's about what motivates your heart obey the law, right? What's driving you? So the command has that vertical horizontal reality. It has that deeper ish, that deeper truth to it. And we see this in Jesus' life. We see Jesus loving his heavenly father, connecting with his heavenly father, connecting with his disciples, and connecting with those that were far from him. He loved all of those people. All the law and prophets, notice this last section before we move on. It says this at the end. It says, all of the law and the prophets depend 
I think it's in the NIV it says actually hang on these two commands. That means that this, this truth, this command that Jesus has given them, that everything that makes life work can be summed up into what? Love God and love people. Love God and love people. Everything that Jesus came to redeem is about loving God and loving people. Everything that sums up our lives can be boiled down to this command. More specifically, the great commandment reminds us that we were ultimately made for relationship with God and others. That we were made for relationship with God and others. Now, I I don't know what your background was, what your upbringing was, um, whether you were in church or not. Uh, but the way I grew up, I was around church, I was in church all my life. Um, the only drug testimony I have was that I was drugged to church every day from the time I was born, okay? And so that's kind of my story. But let me tell you something that, that happened to me as I, I grew up in church, that I, I became very pharisaical. I became very focused on the external appearance. I became very focused on obeying the rules and the guidelines of the church and of the Bible so that I appeared to be godly. Because I wanted people to think highly of me. But all the while, I struggled in my heart to genuinely love God. It's not because I I don't think I wanted to love God. It's because I thought that loving God meant simply that I would just do the things that he commanded. And that that would then, in turn, reveal that I'm this godly person or that I'm really in love with Jesus. Now, again, we're going to talk about the next couple weeks how love for God should result in change of behavior. But I want you to just just work with me this morning as we think about what it means to really love God because we were made for a relationship with him. Think about this. In Genesis, in the garden, they were there and God gave them the one rule not to eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And they ate from that tree anyway. They were deceived by the evil one. He comes in the form of a serpent and he deceives them. What is broken down at that moment in the garden? What falls apart or what what is hurt most deeply in that rebellion? Relationship. Relationship with God and relationship between each other. In fact, when God comes to them for the first time ever, when he would, it sounds like from the Genesis account that he would come in the evening, he would walk with them, and he'd just spend time with them. He'd just appear to them and walk with them. And for the first time he comes and they're hiding. They're hiding from God. Do you ever hide from God? We do, don't we? Because sin causes us to be ashamed. It causes us to be fearful of what God will say. And it breaks down relationship. It breaks down trust. And so there in the garden, we see that relationship with God is broken. But then God says, what happened? And what do they do? They start blame shifting. They start blaming each other. In fact, Adam goes from, hey, the woman you gave me, she caused me to sin. He doesn't just blame Eve, he blames God, right? It breaks down relationships, breaks down trust. And so this vertical and horizontal reality that God wants us to have strong relationships with him, strong relationships with people, like that's broken down because of sin. And it's important for us to understand that because, because God desires a relationship with us. He desires a relationship with there is There's no barriers. There's nothing in between us and him. It's completely, there's complete freedom. You know, one of the sweetest realities of marriage, for those of you who've been married for a long time, 
you kind of pro- probably have gone through seasons of this, but one of the, the most uh, incredible parts about marriage is that when you, when you love and you commit yourself to a person and they get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly and they stay with you. They stick with you through that, right? You get to see the ugliness of our sin come out because sadly, let's be honest, the people that we hurt the most are the people that are closest to us. They have access to us and so they end up being the people that we actually hurt the most, we get, we the, we get uh, most agitated with, uh, we can be the most angry with, we can say the most, most mean things to. And so... There's something that's beautiful that happens when you're fully known and yet still loved. And God desires for us to have a relationship with him. He desires for us to have a relationship with one another that's protected from all of the the sin and the ugliness that comes into our lives because we try to substitute other things for that relationship. We try to substitute other things for, uh, for God. Sin comes, and it's rooted in this idea that we can actually substitute something else. I mean, that's what Satan really was driving at as he tried to deceive Eve and Adam, and he deceives us too. They're thinking there's something else that can satisfy beyond a relationship with God, but we were made for that relationship. So think about this. God's law, his rules, his guidelines are actually designed to protect those relationships. It's designed to protect the relationship we have with him and protect the relationship we have with each other. Because if we don't break the law, what would happen? We don't offend God and we don't offend each other. So it's, it's a way to protect that, protect the relationship that's there. But the truth of the matter is, is that we struggle. We struggle to abide by God's laws and God's rules and the way that we were designed to live. So how do we love God? Practically, how do we love God? Well, let me just go ahead and tell you on the front end, burst your bubble, that we can't. Well, that's really encouraging this morning, Nick. Thanks for that. We came to listen to uh, ourselves be told we can't love God. Well, what do you mean? Well, we can't love God apart from God. Because in and of ourselves, we are incapable of loving God. In and of ourselves, we are broken. In and of ourselves, like I said at the front of this message, is that we naturally will drift towards self. We will naturally drift towards worshiping ourselves. Even in our relationship with God, day in and day out, we tend to go to God when we need something from him that we want for us, right? Because we we, we make life about us instead of about him. The baseline of all of our sin is ultimately idolatry. Worshiping something other than God. Putting all of our stock and all of our energy and all of our effort and all of our resources into something other than God. Putting all of our hope and are finding our identity in something other than God. Even good things can become God things, can't they? Many times in our lives, our children, our spouses, our jobs, they can become God things. You know, um, just moments like yesterday with my wife, we were sitting out, um, we were generously uh, given an opportunity to go out to some place, a place where some, some friends owned um, a, a home, and, and so we were just really grateful to be there, and, and for it to be free, we like free, um, to be, the, be there, and but we were looking out, and, and there were all these um, older couples in their retired years walking along the golf course behind the house, and uh, I want to go and interview all of them, I, like I, I want to go interview all of them, and one, I want to like interview them, ask them questions about marriage, you know, about parenting, like when you get on the other side, you know, what, what things are what things you thinking you wish you would have not done or which things you think you wishing you would have done? You ever been there? 
I, I just wanted to go, and, and all of them had chocolate labs, so I was really getting jealous. They all had these, they were walking their chocolate labs. And uh, it was great, like, we were just walking along, listening. But the one thing I told Jada is that as I was sitting there, and, and this is no, this is no, like, um, I'm not judging them, but they all seemed to be in this, this, this pattern of life where they had worked hard, they had retired, and now they're just out here walking on the golf course. And, and, I, and I just thought, like, like, is that, is that the pinnacle of life? Like, God, we work hard, we make enough money, and then every day we go walk the golf course, start chocolate lab, enjoy being with together, but like basically spend the last years of our life just kind of chilling out, out here in, the, in this retirement home. I, I, I'm not telling you that, you know, that, I, that I've got all the answers on that. I'm just telling you this. I think that God's made us for so much more. I think that God has called us to give our lives to something for the kingdom. And I'm not saying those folks weren't, okay, just because I don't know their story. But it hit me in that moment that there's part of me that's like, oh, man, that's what I want to do. Just, you know, I just want to get to a point where I can just go sit out here and enjoy life and not have to do anything. But is that what we were made for? And the answer I think the Bible gives us is, is no. God's given us an opportunity to invest ourselves in others, to give ourselves away again and again and again. And truth of the matter is today, I'm going to say something controversial, that I, I really don't think that retirement is biblical. Not in the way that we view it in our country sometimes. There's probably men like Patrick Burns in Round Rock, Texas, who I look at, and, and he's re- retired, and the guy is more, he's busier than he's ever been. Why? Because he's given himself away for the kingdom of God. He actually was forced to quit working because he couldn't fly airplanes anymore. They said, you can't fly when you get that old. He fought against it and got him to extend it a little bit longer, and now he just gives his life every day to serving other people, and I love that. And I want to be like that. Because he knows that there's so much more to life. But this command of loving God and loving people helps recenter us on what matters and helps remind us of what our ultimate goal is, is to be fully committed to God with all that we are. You see, this command came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it's the Shema. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says it this way. It says, Hear, O Israel, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? And so here's what's, what's interesting about this passage, because when this was originally given to the people of Israel, uh, they lived among other people groups that worshipped many gods. They were polytheists. So they, they worshipped all these gods. And so this stunning first section here where he says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one God, is because the hearts of the people around them were compelled to worship all these other gods. And so he's saying there's only one. And to this day, if you're a Jewish person, if you grow up in a Jewish home, this Shema is something that you would see plastered all over your home. Uh, on, I'm sure on plaques and your doorposts, different things like that. Because it, it even goes on in this passage to say that you should pass this on to your children. You should convey this to them. And so from the time a kid is born, they hear this. But it would have been shocking in that culture because, again, the, the nature of every other people group was that you can worship many gods. He says, no, you only worship one God. And you love that Lord, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's not so much that each, four, each of those pieces we should break apart and like look at them and say, okay, well, what does it mean to love them with your heart, your mind, your strength? Um, 
but more so that he's just saying it's a complete and total abandonment to God, a complete and total love for God, right? That nothing is held back, that every aspect of our life is completely in love with God. And so when we think about loving God, let's be honest. Those people, were they able to actually do this? Were they able to actually love God with all their heart, with all that they were? And were they able to avoid worshiping other gods? Well, if you were here for the big picture series, you know the end of the story, right? You know the pattern that was ahead for them. They couldn't. And here's the truth today. We can't either. We can't love God apart from God's help. So what's the second part of this? Is there any encouragement? Because that was kind of discouraging. We can't love God. We know where we're headed, towards idolatry, towards love of self. Well, here's the, the, the hope today, that we need to recognize and receive his love. We need to recognize and receive his love. Maybe you know this verse, maybe you don't, but 1 John 4.19 says it this way. We love him, God, because he first, what? He first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. There's only two ways that I could stand up here really and try to preach or teach you guys to change your lives. First, I could teach all of us here with the law, the rules. Do this, do this, do this. We could stand up here, we can give you a list of how-tos, make it a real short, uh, simple, uh, cute little sermon, and give you some tips and tricks on how to, to love God better, right? And there's part of me that would just, like, resonate with that, because as a human being, I, just give me the three things to do and I'll do it, right? So there's, there, there's that approach. And that's kind of the approach that I grew up in, was just, here's the rules, now go do it. Here's the problem. There's really only two responses to that way of teaching. One, you either actually are able to do it, and you become one of the most arrogant people on the planet, and nobody wants to be around you. You ever been around people who actually can do some of these things, and then it's like we puff our chest out, and we walk around like the Pharisees, saying, hey, look at me. I'm able to obey these laws. I'm able to obey these rules. To become self-righteous. But the other response, which I think a lot of us find ourselves in, is that we become self-loathing. We're not self-righteous, but we're just beat down all the time. Like, so ashamed because we can't actually follow through. We can't actually keep up with this rule. We can't keep the rule in place. We can't keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, And many times in our lives, we wonder why we're struggling. It's because we're trying to use the law to do something it wasn't intended to do. So how many of you, I joked about it on the front end, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, you know, have said, I'm going to get healthy this year. You know, I'm going to start eating better, I'm going to start exercising more. But isn't it interesting that we start real strong and then we just kind of, uh, we start to tank. Now my question is, is that just because we haven't willed ourselves with enough discipline? Some people would say yes. In fact, we really applaud people in our culture who are disciplined. And I I appreciate them. I respect them. I've heard things about this new Texas football coach, Charlie Strong. He gets up every morning at 4.30, and he goes and runs, and he thinks about ways to improve his team and how he's going to lead his staff. And, man, he's a super disciplined dude. He's chiseled, rock hard. You know, he's in his 50s, 53 years old, and he just looks like he's a young guy because he's taking such good care of himself. He's so disciplined. But is that really the answer for us in our spiritual walk? I would actually argue, again, no. Because at the end of the day, it's about motivation. It's about motive. What's going on in your heart? 
What is happening inside of you? What's motivating you? Um, my sister this week, she had um, surgery because she has been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And, uh, and so she had surgery this week. And we went up there to be in Waco with them on the day they had surgery. And, and we're hoping to find out a good report this week. So we asked them to continue to pray for her as she recovers. And they decide what course of action they're going to take um, once they know from the, from the pathology report, you know, kind of what's going on. But, but here's the thing. When you have a life situation like that, a health crisis like that, guess what? Your behavior changes. Any of you have been on this planet long enough to have a major health crisis, your behavior changes. So if you have a heart issue or you have high cholesterol and they say you're going to die, or if you get cancer, guess what? Your diet and your exercise change, don't they? Because in that moment, you're thinking to yourself, I want to stay, I want to live, I want to keep living. And so your motive has been impacted by that circumstance. So the point that I'm making to you this morning is that ultimately it's about motive, like what's driving you, what's pushing you. And so as I said, there's only two ways. Law is the first way. I could tell you that ahead of time, and um, my wife and I have had this <laughs> ongoing dialogue because every year we get away to get it together, I always say, I need to exercise more. And I go home and I run for about three or four weeks and then I'm done. Because one, I hate running just to run. Uh, but, but secondly, like, I'm just not motivated. But I know it's good for me. And maybe in your own life it's this way. But listen, here's the thing. The second way that we can actually approach life change this morning is not the law, but it's the love of God. It's the grace of God. See, the law says try harder, but grace says trust deeper. Trust and rely on the message of the gospel that you and I cannot be good enough in ourselves, but Christ is good enough, that he is sufficient. If we are not careful, we will make Christianity about the sacrifices we make for Jesus instead of the sacrifice he's already made for us. Are you with me? Like, that's what we'll do. And if you turn it that way, you'll become either self-righteous or self-loathing. There's only two options. The hub of Christianity is not something that we do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has already done, some, done for us. Does that not stir your heart this morning? It's not about you performing. You can never perform enough. You can never get to a high enough status of, of holiness to deserve heaven or to deserve his forgiveness. He's already given that to you. Day one, we've said this before, but day one in Christianity, you have everything you need because of Jesus Christ. Day one, when you put your trust in Christ, you've been given everything, and now you operate out of that. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, he said this back in the 1800s. He said, when I believed God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. You hearing that? What he's saying is that when I think God is hard and he doesn't love me or that he's just about law, guess what? It's hard to get motivated to to obey him, to do the right thing. But when I understand just how amazing his love is for me, there's nothing off the table. When I understand the lengths that he's gone through to come to me, to to have a relationship with me, to give me life, both now and forever, then I understand that there is nothing that he could not ask of me because my heart is so stirred. You see, the problem is this, that the law points to righteousness, but it can't produce it. But grace, it moves our heart to obey. I see this with my kids all the time. You know, as a parent, when your kids are small, there's consequences that can move your kids to action, right? 
I mean, it doesn't take a lot to get my kids' attention when they're small. But as they get older, and that discipline doesn't, doesn't affect them the same anymore, guess what? Their hearts aren't moved to obey. Not only that, but there is a day coming, and already many times there are times, there are, there are times even now, where my kids are not in my presence any longer. And so what do I use to get them to change? You know? And I see this again and again and again in kids' lives, but when our hearts are moved, when my kids love me because they know that I love them, then they want to, to honor me. They want to obey what Dad has said. And they trust that my heart is for them to see them succeed. The love of God inspires what the law demands. The love of God inspires what the law demands. So where do we go from here? Let me just close out with this. As an individual, let me say, this week as I was writing this message and as I was thinking about all these things, there's something in me again that just wants to say, okay, love God. Okay, here's the three things. Go home, read your Bible more. Go home and pray more. Uh, Go home and tell more people about Jesus. All right, there you go. Love God. You got it. I mean, makes sense. None of y'all would come up and say, man, that was terrible. Yeah, absolutely, I need to do more of that. But here's the problem with that. None of us can do those things consistently unless our hearts are stirred for the one who's saved us and rescued us and redeemed us. And so as an individual, we need to this morning to ask God to do what only he can do in our hearts, which is to awaken in us a fresh new view of his grace, a refreshed view of his love, Because the longer we're a Christian, the harder it is for us to continue to keep in sight what we have received in the person and work of Jesus. The longer we're a Christian, many times we get farther and farther from that reality. We forget where we've come from, and we stop worshiping him for the goodness that we have received in him. And the truth of the matter is, is that we need his grace and his mercy to sustain us every day. The gospel is not just good news message for us before we come to Christ. It's a good news message every single day of our life. And that's what changes us. That God is everything we need. He is sufficient. So we need to ask him to do that and ask him to increase our affection for him. But as a church, let me just say that we as a church want to be a place where we don't just call people to follow rules. Where we just say, hey, listen, get your act together. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, like, we would just turn into a bunch of Pharisees. Or we just shame people away. Nobody wants to be a part of us. Because all we're doing is saying, like, you can do this or you can't do this. But here's the, the, the truth. As a church, as a community of believers, we don't want to become Pharisees like the, those in the New Testament who tie heavy burdens on people with things like just try harder or you can do it, or even better, um, you better do it or else. But we want to constantly remind each other of what the Jesus Storybook Bible says. I don't know if you guys have a Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't, even if you're an adult with no kids, get one. Read through it. Because here's what it says. Throughout the, the, the passages in the Old Testament and the New, it uses this phrase about the love of God. That it is the unstoppable, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And when that grips our heart, we can't stop obeying Him. We can't stop doing the things He's called us to do. 
Because love motivates the most extravagant obedience. Love motivates the most extravagant acts of service. Love motivates us to not only think about our relationship with God, but other people's relationship with God and how we can help them experience what we have tasted and seen in Christ. 